On February 22, 2018, Dr. Greg Forster, director of the Oikonomia Network at the Center for Transformational Churches at Trinity International University, delivered a lecture entitled Division Point, Whitaker Chambers' Witness for the 21st Century. The lecture was delivered as part of the 2018 Acton Lecture Series in the Mark Murray Auditorium at the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is Greg Forster. Whitaker Chambers was one of the great Christian political thinkers and writers of the 20th century. His masterpiece is a book called Witness. And Acton has a really impressive library in this building, and I discovered today they have a first edition copy of Whitaker Chambers' Witness. I might accidentally walk off with this instead of the copy that I brought today, so please forgive me in advance if I do that. This is what the current edition looks like, uh, and these are on sale uh, outside, and I would encourage you to check this book out. I want to talk first about the meaning of the title, Witness. Chambers was a Soviet spy who experienced a conversion to Jesus Christ, and he walked away from everything that he had spent his entire life building. His account of his conversion to Christ and his willingness to sacrifice everything for the sake of truth and justice is, and I don't say this lightly, comparable in its beauty and power to Augustine's Confessions. And that is one meaning of the title, witness. It is a witness to his faith in Jesus Christ and the transformation that resulted. Ten years after he did this, having rebuilt his life, he was a senior editor at Time Magazine, and once again, he found himself having to walk away from everything that he had built for the sake of the truth, in order to tell the truth about what he had done as a Soviet spy. He wanted to rouse a lethargic and inattentive nation to a dire threat. This was at a time when most Americans viewed communism as wrong-headed, and disreputable, something you didn't want to be involved in, but not seriously dangerous and certainly not totalitarian. The American media had deliberately concealed the mass murders and the genocide from the American public. The Soviet Union, which by that time had already murdered more civilians than the Holocaust, was portrayed as a peaceful democracy. Mao's movement in China was described as agrarian liberals. Chambers was critical in breaking through the wall of lies and forcing a public confrontation with the true nature of communism. And that's another meaning of the title, witness. But above all, Chambers bore witness that America had lost its way spiritually. He said the modern world is in crisis because technological progress and economic development have brought an end to older ways of life that were bound by traditions. In those older ways of life, traditions had dictated to people what the meaning and the purpose of their life was. But today, in the advanced modern world, we have to figure out the meaning of our lives for ourselves. And we obviously have not developed the moral and spiritual maturity to do a good job of this reliably. We find ourselves facing a basic question, God or man? God or man? Do we believe that the human mind is the highest thing that there is? That the solution to our problems is the almighty mind of man, remaking the world to eliminate war, poverty, and injustice? Or do we believe that there is a power higher than the human mind? 
that the destiny of man is not in the hands of man. Chambers said, without God, man cannot organize the world for man. Without God, man can only organize the world against man. Without God, sooner or later, we are going to start lying, cheating, and stealing, and eventually torturing and murdering on a massive scale in order to remake the world, believing that because our destiny is in our own hands, that means we have the power to set the world free, set the world free from war and poverty and injustice, if only we are willing to pay the price if only we are willing to make the necessary sacrifices. Who will control our destiny? God or man? Chambers said the communist East has chosen man, and it practices totalitarianism and mass murder because it has the courage of that conviction. The capitalist West, meanwhile, has also chosen man, but it does not practice mass murder because it is haunted by the specter of its Christian past. That is why the West is in crisis. That is why the world is in crisis. We don't want to answer God. So we're all running around like fools trying to find some way we can answer man and not become monsters. And Whitaker Chambers is here to tell you, in the long run, that can't be done. That's the highest meaning, I think, of the, of the title, witness. Chambers had grown to love his country very dearly, and because he loved it so much, he bore witness against, a prophetic witness, against our American version of this monstrous vision of the almighty mind of man that can remake the world. Chambers grew up in an unhappy home, a home full of emotional neediness, manipulation, heavy jealousies. He writes about the spiritual emptiness of the family that he grew up in as a reflection of the spiritual emptiness of the country. He had a younger brother named Richard who was uh, really popular at school and he was able to take solace in his friends, but Chambers himself was awkward and socially inept and he was tormented as much at school as he was at home. His only escape was into the woods. He spent long days walking alone in the woods near his home in the world of nature. He said, nature gives peace to anyone who comes to see and to hear and not to change. As a teenager, he ran away from home. He got a job laying railways in the streets in Washington, DC. On that job, he experienced the hopelessness and the cruel mistreatment of the impoverished workers. On his very first day on the job, as one of the streetcars slowed down in order to move through the work site, a laughing passenger leaned his head out of the window and casually and deliberately spat tobacco juice all over him. But among those workers, Chambers also experienced the unique compassion and mutual assistance that the poor give to one another in their affliction. After he was forced to return home, Chambers went to Columbia University looking around at the chaos and the injustice of the world, watching the developments uh, in and after World War I, and also his own experience, he became convinced that society was sick, so sick that only surgery could save it. 
and he became convinced that communism was history's surgeon. He would later write, nobody becomes a communist because communism is intrinsically attractive. People become communists because they confront the crisis of history in the modern world, and they are driven to desperation because they can't find any other answers. And also because the blurring of the lines between good and evil is part of that crisis of history. Well, his advisor at Columbia was Mark Van Doren, and Van Doren told him, go see the wave of the future. They're building it in the Soviet Union. In order to get over to the Soviet Union, Chambers joined a Quaker international relief team, and among the Quakers, he began to discover God, and he moved toward God. He was powerfully moved by the peace of the Quaker meeting, where they will sit in silence for long periods so that the Spirit of God can make his presence felt. But then the Quakers discovered some atheistic writings that Chambers had published in the student paper. They kicked him off the relief team, and they cast him out of the meeting house. Chambers said that if even one person had taken him aside in that moment and asked him, what is in your heart, he would never have become a communist. But instead, he was left bitterly asking himself, where in Christendom is the Christian? So he began calling himself a communist. Eventually, he dropped out of college in order to join the Communist Party. During this time, his brother Richard had also gone off to college, and Richard's life fell apart. Richard was not as popular at college as he had been at home, and without those friends and the popularity to prop him up, the inner emptiness of his life consumed him. He was reading pessimistic, atheistic philosophy, and he came home uh, declaring that life is meaningless, suffering and folly. Uh, he said to his family, I'm not brave enough to kill myself yet, but I will be soon. He began drinking heavily, staying out all night. He would bring girls into the shed behind the house at night. The parents saw what was happening, but they were helpless. They felt helpless to do anything about it. So it fell to Chambers to try to convince his brother not to kill himself. They had endless arguments. Richard said, look around you. Look at people. They're all hypocrites. Look at the world. It's hopeless. Look at religion. Even the people who pretend to believe in it don't really. Look at marriage, it's a fraud. Look at family, look at our family. And children, it's a crime against nature to bring children into this world. Chambers told him it's not the world that's evil, it's what people have made of the world that's evil. The answer is to struggle against evil. He said, communism has found the way out. Richard just spat at that. The communists are just another fraud like all the others. And besides, what does it matter? We're all gonna die. Nothing waiting for us but eternal oblivion. There's no hope to build anything meaningful with death waiting for us all. After a prolonged period of agony for the entire family, Richard finally killed himself. Chambers began visiting Richard's grave every day before work and then again every day after work. Winter came and the graveyard was covered with snow. On New Year's Eve, Chambers was still there standing at his brother's grave when midnight came with the new year, and Chambers began to hear the sound of celebration. Fireworks, bells, car horns, parties, the sound of glass smashing against the cemetery wall. And standing there, Chambers blamed those, those partiers and their whole world for Richard's death. This 
materialistic, shallow world that wallows in superficial pleasures and gave Richard nothing that was worth living for. And he thought that the only thing he had worth living for was the struggle to destroy that shallow and materialistic society. So standing there in the graveyard, he consecrated his life to the destruction of America. He would later write, at that point I had been a member of the Communist Party for some time. But it was not until that night that I truly became a communist. I became irreconcilable. He walked out of the graveyard and he never went back there. He worked in the open communist party for several years in a variety of roles. Then he was recruited into the Soviet underground and spent six years there as a spy. At first, in New York, he was part of a smuggling operation, shuttling messages and materials between the American underground and the European underground. Later, he returned to Washington, where he had laid rails. But now he had come to organize one of several Soviet apparatuses that penetrated the United States government. Chambers was a go-between. He would bring the commands of the Soviet government to a number of highly placed American officials, and he would receive from them copies of state uh, secret documents to be, uh, to be copied and passed on. In this period in the 1930s, shockingly large numbers of middle class intellectuals, the kind of people who populate the US government, were becoming communists. It can be very difficult for us today to recapture that moment in the 1930s when so many people uh, in that group became communists or were sympathetic enough to help them. Chambers said at the time, capitalism is going to fall not because we will break the locks, but because all the men who have been trusted to hold the keys are joining the conspiracy. In order to live undercover, Chambers had to adopt the lifestyle of a respectable bourgeois and blend in with the world around him. But there was one thing he refused to compromise on. In order to blend in, he had to hire a black woman as a housekeeper because that was the prevailing practice in the neighborhood. But although it meant a risk of discovery, he refused to pay her the lower Negro wage that was the acceptable practice. And even more risky than that, he invited her to dine at the family dinner table with the family. As a communist, Chambers refused to have segregated dining in his home. He would later write, by acting as a communist must, I acted as a Christian should. However, he soon discovered that most communists were not as scrupulous as he was. At first, he thought that by entering the underground, he would be escaping the petty factional squabbling, the recriminations and the constant cycles of purges and recriminations that were ubiquitous in the open party. But he soon found out that the underground had its own forms of destructive stupidity. The rise of communism to national power in Russia was producing a new kind of communist. Careerist, corrupt, cynical. The party is nothing but a path to power for them. Chambers was forced to help the party to hurt people and even kill people in petty disputes that had nothing to do with the communist cause or advancing the world revolution. He went along with it he said, because the only hope for a better world was communism. So if he disobeyed the Communist Party and was thrown out, he would lose the whole purpose of his life. 
But doubts were beginning to grow in his mind. Something else happened to Chambers as well. Into that world of death came the unexpected power of new life. And I'd like to share this with you. For one of us to have a child, my brother had said in his agony, would be a crime against nature. I longed for children, but I agreed with my brother. There had been enough misery in our line. What selfish right had I to perpetuate it? And what right had any man or woman to bring a child into the 20th century world? They could only suffer its inevitable revolutions or die in its inevitable wars. One extreme group among the communists held that it was morally wrong for a professional revolutionist to have children at all. They could only hamper or distract his work. That was one of the penalties of being a communist. I did not belong to that group, but in general, I shared their views. As an underground communist, I took it for granted that children were out of the question. Not only left-wing and underground communists took such matters for granted. Abortion was a commonplace of party life. There were communist doctors who rendered that service for a small fee. Communists who were more choosy knew liberal doctors who would provide it for a larger fee. Abortion, which now fills me with physical horror, I then regarded, like all communists, as a mere physical manipulation. One day in early 1933, my wife told me that she believed she had conceived. No man can hear from his wife, especially for the first time, that she is carrying his child without a physical jolt of joy and pride. I felt it. But so sunk were we in that life that it was only a passing joy and was succeeded by a merely momentary sadness that we would not have the child. We discussed the matter, and my wife said she must go at once for a physical check and to arrange for the abortion. When my wife came back, she was quiet and noncommittal. The doctor had said there was a child. My wife went about preparing supper. What else did she say, I asked. She said I'm in good physical shape to have the child. My wife went on working. Very slowly, the truth dawned on me. Do you mean, I asked, that you want to have the child? My wife came over to me, took my hands, and burst into tears. Dear heart, she said with a pleading voice, we couldn't do that awful thing to a little baby. Not to a little baby, dear heart. A wild joy swept over me. Reason, the agony of my family, the Communist Party and its theories, the wars and revolutions of the 20th century crumbled at the touch of the child. Both of us simply wanted a child. If the points on the long course of my break with communism could be retraced, that is probably one of them. Not at the level of conscious mind, but at the level of unconscious life. The child, even before her birth, had begun invisibly to lead us out of that darkness that we could not even realize toward that light which we could not even see. As his daughter grew, Chambers used to love sitting there watching her in her high chair, smearing porridge on her face or meditatively dropping it on the floor. One day, he noticed her ear, how intricate and complex the human ear was. And the thought came burning into his mind, 
That could not have happened by accident. Only an immense design could have created that. The thought was unwanted, and he shoved it aside, but it would return to haunt him. In 1937, Stalin's purges reached their peak. Chambers watched as people who, had, who he had known and cared about for years, dedicated communists who had given their lives to the cause and to the party, were brutally murdered for no good reason. And his superiors laughed and joked about it. They enjoyed the cruelty. His doubts growing, Chambers read a book by a man who had escaped from a Soviet labor camp. He began to be haunted by the screams of those whom he had helped to hurt and to kill. The screams of people shot in basements or dropped down wells. The screams of children torn forever from their parents never to see them again. The screams of people locked in railway cars and left on the railway tracks to freeze in the Siberian winter. Chambers said, the vision of communism is the vision of the almighty mind of man, so no one ever really stops being a communist until they discover that there is something in man that is greater than the mind. Those screams of the people in agony were the cry of something inside human beings that is greater than mind, was the cry of the human soul. And they were crying out to the only thing that can hear a human soul another human soul. The screams, listening to the screams, caused Chambers to realize that those people he was hurting had souls and that he had a soul too. It began to dawn on him that the problem was not that Stalin had perverted communism. The problem was communism itself. As he said, the problem is not that Stalin is evil, but communism is even more evil. And only at the very end of that process did he finally allow himself to return to that thought that he had suppressed years earlier when he noticed his daughter's ear. He finally allowed himself to ask, what is it that we are missing that communism always goes so wrong? Could it be God? He had reached what he called the division point the point where equivocation and compromise are no longer possible, the point where you have to choose one path or the other. He got down on his knees and prayed. And he began praying every day. And he came to need prayer like food and water. By turning to God, he was discovering who he really was. The, that illusion of the almighty mind of man began to fade away. Chambers said, reason is good, but there is a flaw in humanity, a flaw that causes great evil and suffering, and it goes beyond the realm where reason can reach. As he put it, the death camps exist first in our minds. When he finally left the Communist Party in April 1938, he left absolutely everything that he had except his wife and children. He had no career, and the Depression was on. He had no standing in any community, no relationships. He was a fugitive from both the American government and the Soviet government. He knew that the party's first instinct would be to kill him, possibly getting to him through his family. So he got himself a car and a weapon. He took his last stash of stolen documents and he gave it to a cousin to hide 
to use as leverage against the party in case they kidnapped his wife or child. And then he fled into hiding for six months or so. After that, he emerged from hiding, and he went back and contacted his former contacts in the underground. And he tried to persuade them to leave the party, to defect from the Communist Party. And he threatened to denounce them to the authorities if they wouldn't. In 1939 came the Hitler-Stalin Pact, the alliance between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And Chambers knew that the Soviet underground in Washington would be put at Hitler's disposal to use against the US. And so it had become his duty to become an informer. Becoming an informer was physically and spiritually repulsive to Chambers because it involved using people's trust in you to destroy them. It was a sort of slow motion spiritual death for him even though it was morally the right thing to do. And the worst of it was he went to the government and he told them everything he knew, and they didn't do anything about it. Through a friend, Chambers got the opportunity to apply for a job at Time Magazine. He worked his way up from book reviews to senior editor. He became a Quaker. He returned to the deep peace of the Quaker meeting from his college days. The Chamberses moved to a family farm, which they worked entirely themselves on top of Chambers' more than a full-time job as a senior editor of Time magazine. The farm was their witness against the materialism of the modern world. The farm said, we choose this life of great hardship and great satisfaction because the modern world has nothing better than this to offer us. Over the course of nine years at Time, Chambers watched as the people who had worked for him as Soviet spies moved their way up in the New Deal administration. Harry Dexter White led the creation of the World Bank and served as his first president. And a Harvard-trained lawyer named Alger Hiss, who had become the closest friend of Chambers' whole life during their service together in the Soviet underground, became a major architect of US foreign policy in the post-World War II period. Hiss, who was a Soviet spy, sat directly behind President Roosevelt across the table from Stalin at the Yalta conference. Hiss was essential in the creation of the United Nations. He later became the president of the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace. And in the initiatives of the New Deal, which involved not only safety net programs, but also massive central planning and quasi-nationalization of many industries, Chambers thought that he heard not communism, but a milder and more liberal form of that destructive vision of the almighty mind of man. In 1948, nine years, uh, 10 years after he left the party and after nine years of time, Chambers was summoned to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. He still had a large mortgage. He knew that by testifying, he could lose the, his job and the farm. He did, in fact, lose his job as a result of his testimony, although he did manage to keep the farm going until much later. He could have saved himself, saved his job, saved his position at the top of American society, at Time Magazine, by just pretending not to remember very much. But he decided to tell what he knew. The nation did not understand either the extent or the totalitarian nature of the communist threat. Now, most of Chambers' contacts from his underground days by that time had either already admitted that they were communists, or had left the country, or had died, or pled the fifth. But almost alone of the whole group, Alger Hiss, 
Chambers' closest friend in the whole world, stood up in public and denied everything. The public hearing at which Chambers and Hiss confronted one another was the first televised congressional hearing. Not the more famous hearings about the mafia from the 1950s. In fact, you can actually see television footage of the, of the hearings on YouTube. I'm going to play a quick clip here. Uh, this is a point where Alger Hiss has been listing a long list of highly respectable and powerful people that he's worked with, and he's bragging about uh, his credentials. Uh, so let's roll that. Prominent Americans with whom he worked, including Senators Vandenberg and Connolly, and former State Secretaries Hall, Statinius, and Burns. Ask them if they ever found in me anything except the highest adherence to duty and honor. Then the committee can judge and the public can judge whether to believe a self-discredited accuser whose names and aliases are as numerous and as casual as his accusations. The other side of this question is the reliability of the allegations before this committee, the undocumented statements of the man who now calls himself Whitaker Chambers. Is he a man of consistent reliability, truthfulness, and honor? Clearly not. He admits it, and the committee knows it. Chambers, who has already sworn that he pleaded with Hiss to join him in leaving the party, is recalled in the middle of the dramatic nine-hour session. Asked why he singled out Hiss, he replies, The story is spread in testifying against Mr. Hiss. I'm working out some old grudge for motives of revenge or hatred. I don't hate Mr. Hiss. We were close friends, but we are caught in the tragedy of history. Mr. Hiss represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting and I am fighting. I've testified against him with remorse and pity. You can really see the contrast, can't you? Hiss, this beautiful man well-spoken and accustomed to public speaking, and close friends with half the people who run the institutions of American society. And Chambers, this overweight, awkward, shy, soft-spoken, halting man. The case became a national sensation. The confrontation was fascinating. There's a picture you can find on uh, Google Images of Chambers sitting in the committee room waiting to testify, and sitting next to him is a man with a newspaper. He's reading it, and the banner headline on the newspaper says, Who is lying? After he testified, Chambers was shocked to discover that his fellow news reporters had no interest in gathering the facts. They all went and interviewed Hiss, but none of them interviewed him. Throughout the case, the national media did its best to portray Chambers in the most negative light possible. Chambers went on Meet the Press, where the panel of reporters interviewing him was moderated by a reporter who had personally recommended Alger Hiss for his position as president of the Carnegie Endowment. These supposedly neutral, objective reporters treated Chambers so shamefully that after the show, his son asked him, Papa, why do those men hate you so? 
after, as the testimony unfolded, it became clear that Hiss was lying. The evidence was all against him. Hiss started dodging questions. He had to keep changing his story. That didn't affect the media coverage, however. On the contrary, the more clear it became that Hiss was in trouble, the more the media covered up for him and found ways to attack Chambers. So it was not until many years later that the nation at large fully realized how clearly and unambiguously the evidence had been against Hiss from the beginning. President Truman made the case into an election issue. He denounced Whitaker Chambers at rallies in front of big cheering crowds. The security official that Chambers had gone to in 1939 uh, to tell all he knew lied about what Chambers had told him. And the lie would have stuck, but the man's notes were introduced into evidence and they contradicted his story. In the trials that came out of the case, two sitting Supreme Court justices took the stand as character witnesses for Alger Hiss. Who do you think took the stand as a character witness for Whitaker Chambers? The housekeeper. The black woman he had hired and refused to pay the lower wage. He paid her a decent wage and he invited her to sit at the table and eat with the family. As Chambers put it, in our dining room we gave her back her human dignity. And on the witness stand, she gave me back my human dignity. Hiss's main strategy was to smear Chambers. Uh, he said in his testimony that he had heard from someone that Chambers had been in a mental institution. This charge was repeated by many others with no evidence. In the courtroom, the chair of the Harvard Psychiatry Department took the stand and testified under oath that he had diagnosed Whitaker Chambers as a delusional and dangerous mentally ill man solely on the basis of reading his articles in Time magazine. In public, the smear was Chambers is crazy. In private, the smear was Chambers is a pervert, an adulterer, a homosexual, and a pedophile. The only reason the Hiss forces decided not to make those charges in public, the only reason is because they were afraid people might think Hiss was a homosexual too. But in private, they spread the word among all of their friends, which included everybody at the top of the government and media, that Chambers had had an affair with Hiss's wife and this is why Hiss was lying in order to protect her, that Chambers had propositioned Hiss for sex and had been turned down and had become obsessed with him, that Chambers had a, an affair with Hiss's stepson, a homosexual affair with Hiss's stepson, and that this was why Hiss was lying, to protect his, his stepson, that Chambers had sexually abused his younger brother Richard, and that this was why Richard had killed himself. At the trial, Chambers was questioned on the stand at great length by Hiss's attorneys about the suicide of his brother. And at the time, he didn't understand why. It was because the Hiss forces were hoping that the jury had heard the rumors that they had been spreading, that Chambers had abused his brother and that that's why his brother committed suicide. These claims were widely believed. No claim was too outrageous to be believed if it made the Harvard man, the respectable lawyer, the New Dealer, the architect of the United Nations, and friend to half the people who run the institutions of the country as the hero and the fat weirdo Quaker as the villain. But then Hiss's lawyers made their fatal mistake. They demanded that Chambers turn over any documents from Hiss that he might have in his possession. They assumed, of course, that he would have nothing and that this would be embarrassing for him. But Chambers remembered. He had taken that last parcel of stolen documents and handed it to his cousin to hide to use as leverage against the party in case his wife or child were kidnapped. He didn't remember what was in it. He went back to his cousin to get it. It had sat in a dumbwaiter 
shaft for 10 years. It had 65 pages of handwritten documents and canisters of microfilm that, when they were developed, produced a stack of documents four feet high. Proved beyond a doubt that Hiss was lying. There were documents in Hiss's handwriting and typed on his, Hiss's typewriter. There were copies of secret documents that only Hiss could have acquired and that he had no legitimate reason to be making copies of. On the stand, Hiss actually said, under oath, I am amazed, and to my dying day, I will wonder how Whitaker Chambers got into my house to use my typewriter. <laughs> Hiss went to jail for perjury. More importantly, the nation was awakened to the real nature of communism. There would be no more cheap and easy talk about a peaceful and democratic Soviet Union or agrarian liberals in China. Chambers' description of communism, his powerful testimony to what it was, and his willingness to endure all suffering and sacrifice in order to oppose it had exposed the true nature of the threat. In his retirement, Chambers was sought out by William F. Buckley, who at that time was building what would become the conservative movement, and the two of them became very close friends. For a short time, Chambers wrote for National Review, including uh, a deconstruction of uh, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which remains to this day one of the key documents of American intellectual life. Chambers' interaction with Buckley and with the other conservatives forced him to recognize something he had never uh, been willing to admit before, that human freedom is inextricably linked to economic and technological development. This was a huge change for Chambers. He had spent his entire adult life denouncing the mechanization of the modern world, building that family farm, trying to get back to the land, to get back to the woods from his unhappy childhood where nature offers peace to those who come to see and to hear and not to change. But near the end of his life, he wrote to Buckley, I have decided that the machine is not the enemy. But Chambers never joined the conservative movement. He insisted from the beginning that he was not conservative. For one thing, he was vehemently opposed to Joe McCarthy from the very beginning. He wrote sharply worded letters to Buckley telling him, practically begging him, to stop defending McCarthyism. But Buckley wouldn't listen. At a deeper level, though, Chambers shared the conservatives' desire to resist totalitarianism and to limit the expansion of state power and central planning. But he thought that the conservatives had too limited a vision. Uh, the vision that if we just get public policy right, if we protect individual rights and the free market, that that would be enough to solve the problem, the crisis of history in the modern world. Now, make no mistake, Chambers was an uncompromising defender of individual rights and the free market. But to think that that alone would be enough to solve the crisis of the modern world seemed to him like just another form of the old fallacy, the almighty mind of man that can uh, invent public policies that will solve our problems without God. See, Chambers thought that a return to God was not central enough to the conservative project, nor could it be made central without fundamentally altering the nature of the project. Well, what can we learn from Whitaker Chambers today? A lot, I think, but I want to suggest a few starting points. I think Chambers has a lot to say both to the left and to the right today. To my friends on the left, I want to say this. First of all, the time has come to stop glamorizing communism. 
A hundred million people were murdered by this totalitarian movement. And when we romanticize Castro or Che Guevara or North Korea, it discredits whatever cause you're advocating. And it also raises serious doubts in the minds of some people about whether you really value human life and human rights and human freedoms for people who disagree with you about politics. I also want to ask my friends on the left to recognize that the power of government, the media, and the academy have been used consistently and absolutely unscrupulously to mistreat people on the right, and that this has been going on for 70 years. Finally, I'd like to ask my friends on the left to consider that in the 1930s and again in the 1960s, the expansion of government power was publicly justified by a dangerous level of faith that rational experts can solve our problems for us without God if we just give them the power. In 1966, Sergeant Shriver, who was the head of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, was asked, how long will it take to win the War on Poverty and eliminate poverty entirely? He said, 10 years. Now that doesn't mean that a safety net for the truly needy is illegitimate. And I appreciate that my friends on the left are no longer running around saying they can solve poverty in 10 years. But the ideology of giving power to experts so that they can solve our problems for us without God has never been clearly and consistently repudiated, and it ought to be repudiated. But I also think that Chambers' story has some very hard lessons for the right as well, and I include myself here. I'm speaking repentantly of things that I have done. First of all, we need to recognize that the vision of the almighty mind that can plan the world has greatly receded on the left. Progressivism today is not nearly as ambitious as progressivism in the 1930s or the 1960s. I think we need to dial back our tendency to talk as if anybody who believes in a welfare state even slightly larger than what we are willing to accept is somehow just one step away from totalitarianism and mass murder. German or British-style social democracy is bad, and it's not what I want. I'm opposed to it. But it's not totalitarianism. Let's dial down the rhetoric. Second, I'd like to ask my friends on the right to recognize that since the 1980s, we have built some pretty big and powerful institutions of our own. We're no longer powerless and outcast, as Chambers was. We have our own big media, big politics, big academics. And I'm afraid our big institutions have not really done much better when it comes to mistreating people than the left's institutions have done treating us. I think we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask, have we become the oppressor that we set out to fight? And have we practiced the politics of grievance and resentment and victim culture that we accuse others of practicing? Finally, we need to recognize that limiting government, while good and necessary, is not enough. Getting government out of the way will not by itself be sufficient to meet the needs of the crisis of history in the modern world. The gradual expansion of state power over more and more areas of life is caused primarily by the absence of large-scale church-led solutions to social problems.
until the church creates church-led solutions to social problems and proves that they work, people are just going to continue looking to government to solve their problems for them. Because if the church is not there, where else are they going to look? The church has to stop waiting for government's permission to do its job. And I think that kind of enterprise could reveal enormous common ground between Christians who are on the left and the right. This is our division point. Will God hear us if we cry out to him? It's time for the church to come together, roll up our sleeves, and get to work. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Forster. We now have time for a few questions. And uh, please wait for the mic, signal us. We are uh, live streaming, and so we'd like to capture the questions as best we can. Uh, one of your last comments, where is the, the, the big uh, right academia? Uh, I think part of that is think tanks. So it's not colleges necessarily, but think tanks were created in large part to serve as a substitute for academic positions for uh, uh, people on the right who could not get jobs in academia. So there's a sort of uh, shadow academia among think tanks. But there are also conservative colleges. Uh, fewer of them, but numbers are not really what's relevant to the discussion here. I just want to thank you for um, giving me the impetus to take my 25-year-old second edition copy off my shelf that's been sitting at home for 25 years. When I saw you were speaking, I thought, maybe I should start to read this book. So I'm a third of the way through, and it reads like a great novel, so thank you. Um, my question is, you said that um, the media and the ac and academia and government, you know, and that whole impact kind of related to the previous question. It seems like it has, that, that trifecta right there has really accelerated in the last five years or so. My question is, do you agree? And if so, why has that happened? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. First of all, thank you for your testimony about the book. Um, some people are reluctant to pick up the book because it is a little long, so I tell them, read the introduction. The introduction is called, Introduction in the Form of a Letter to My Children. I tell them, just read that, and if you read that, you will want to read the rest of the book. And if you don't, come to me and I'll buy the book from you for whatever you paid for it. So that's a, a money-back guarantee. You can't beat that. Um, thank you for that excellent question. I do think it's accelerating. I think uh, mutual mistreatment is accelerating, and I think that's part of the advancing polarization. Uh, it feeds on itself. I think it would be my, my first answer to why are things accelerating? Why is people mistreating each other accelerating? Well, because the more you mistreat me, the more I want to mistreat you. Uh, not only out of a sense of uh, resentment or revenge, but also because uh, I can capitalize on your misdeeds by advertising your misdeeds to my constituencies. Uh, and the more that happens, the more I can do it. But the more I do that, the more I generate ill will that leads to resentment and on and on in a vicious circle forever. Uh, like Chambers said, there is something wrong with human beings, and it goes beyond where reason can reach. Uh, and we are reaching our division point. Uh, I, had to, I had to leave this about a little bit for, for time, but uh, Chambers has a chapter called The Division Point. Uh, and he said that the, in anyone's life, uh, the division point will be decided by how they answer this question, will God hear me if I cry out to him? Uh, and I think we're, we're reaching a division point. 
uh, because we're trying more and more of the things that we think will solve our problems, but they're not solving our problems. And the reason is because that flaw goes beyond where we can reach. And ultimately, we're either going to call out to God or not. Uh, and that I, I think we're seeing a cycle of, of mutual, uh, a, vicious, a vicious cycle. If you would, speak to the uh, slope between socialism and communism and totalitarianism. And do you feel like uh, Americans um, kind of understand um, all three of those or not? <laughs> well, I'll answer the last part first. No, I don't think there's much uh, popular understanding of any of these issues. And uh, part of that is just the kind of materialistic lethargy that Chambers writes about in this book, that people just want to have their New Year's Eve parties and they don't want to worry about the crisis of history. And this, in the older tradition-bound societies, everybody had a stake in the direction of history. Uh, but that, that came at the price of human freedom because traditions were imposed on people. And now in the modern world, we have freedom to choose, and we have to figure this out for ourselves. But we don't want to do that. We want to have a party. Um, so coming back to your question about the distinctions, I think there are two ways of approaching this. Uh, if you, so the, the academic discipline of economics has one way of differentiating capitalism, socialism, and communism, and the discipline of sociology has a very different way of, of differentiating them. I think the, the way that econ economists do it has become the, the standard uh, on the right and, and in our language world, and the standard that's used in, in so, uh, sociology has become the standard on the, on the left, and we, we use these words to mean different things, and we're talking past each other, uh, but nobody can say my way is the right way because each is right in one academic discipline that is looked to as authoritative. People on the right love economics and people on the left love sociology. Uh, and we kind of both have to value both. Uh, so if you look at it through an economic lens, um, capitalism is primarily distinguished by uh, rights to property and exchange protected under rule of law. Uh, now, that's a very basic definition, and we can get into historical developments like in the investment system, loans and uh, com commerce and um, insurance, the joint stock company, right? Um, in fact, you can find uh, the idea of property and division of labor and freedom of exchange is in Plato's Republic. Uh, before he describes the utopia, Plato describes what the conventional city looks like. And he says the, the fundamental beginning point of the conventional city uh, is people have different jobs and they exchange their work with each other. And this basically, I mean, it's the rudiments of market economics. Um, but over time, we develop things like the joint stock company and that sort of thing. So this historical development. Um, socialism comes in with the idea that we can control the system of exchange, the price system where people are buying and selling. Uh, in Properly speaking, according to the economic way of looking things, in a socialist environment, people still own their own property. What's controlled and attempt to be centrally planned is the exchange prices. Right. Um, that's why you have to distinguish between the existence of a welfare state with safety net programs. That's not socialism. right? Uh, uh, because you still have a system of property rights in exchange, which is not under central control. Now, we can debate about transfer programs, but that's not a, tra a transition to socialism. By contrast, government controlling markets, like we do with healthcare systems, for example, is, according to economic definition, socialism. Communism comes in as a sort of logical endpoint of that process when property rights are taken away. Uh, so it's not just the price system that's controlled, but people don't have a right to their own property. Uh, and that's a logical endpoint, because when you try socialism, you discover that it doesn't work. 
And then you have to make your decision whether you're going to change direction and try a totally different approach or double down and say, well, the reason the price controls are not working is because people have the right to control their property. So let's take that away. Right. Uh, now, sociologically, I think we can talk about different narratives. Uh, what kind of cosmos is pictured implicitly? Every social system has an implicit picture of the, of the universe that's implied in its structure. Right? So um, the question is, are we going to have a system with a narrative that uh, begins with God, or are we going to have a system with a narrative that begins with human beings in the almighty mind of man being able to solve its own problems? Uh, and so when you, get, um, when you get people in sociology sort of portraying capitalism as evil, often what they mean by capitalism is a materialistic narrative of the universe that's focused on consumer desires are the only thing worth worrying about. So satisfying your consumer desires is the highest thing in life. Uh, and I share, the view that that, I share the view that that's terrible. I just think it's a bad idea to rearrange your economic system on the idea that you can somehow, by taking control of it and planning things, change that, right? Uh, that's why I encourage the role of the church, right? Let's, let's roll up our sleeves and create some church-built solutions to these problems. It's the only thing that changes the narrative, you know, to a God-centered narrative. Uh, so thank you for that question. That's very, very good. We have time for one more. So as you were speaking to the left and then to the right, you mentioned um, the church needing to raise up. I want to know, in your mind, when you picture the church, do you picture it as the Protestant church or the Catholic church? And what are the operational differences of the two? Do you see a difference? And, and how do the two learn from one another? What are the lessons that the Catholic Church can use or learn from the Protestant Church and vice versa in solving this human dignity issue? That's an excellent question, and it's a, it's a critical question for the moment we find ourselves in. Um, there's so much to be said about that. Uh, I think, first of all, uh, what do I picture as, as the church? Uh, well, there's no secret about my own position. I'm a Protestant and an evangelical. Uh, I, uh, although there's no church near me in this denomination, in my heart I belong to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is about as radically Protestant as is possible to get without falling off the cliff. Uh, but that, that ha so that having been said, I do lament a certain isolationism. Uh, so, for example, in the denominational magazine uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, the denominational diaconate body was coordinating efforts with Catholic uh, relief programs, and there was all this anxiety about, is it okay for us to coordinate our hurricane relief? You know, with Catholic, there was actually, in the denominational magazine, there was a cover story with the, uh, with the headline, Protestants and Catholics together, question mark, showing hurricane relief as the picture. And the article, of course, is defending coordination with Catholic agencies, but it's recognizing that this is still you know, a major anxiety point that people are wringing their hands. Is this OK for us to be doing this? Uh, I have been powerfully moved by uh, a statement that was made by a pastor named Greg Thompson. Uh, he said, if you, to think about Protestant Catholics' relations, think about this image. Imagine a man and a wife having an argument on their front lawn. Right? And it's a vicious, it's a really bitter argument. And they're saying things that are going to have permanent consequences for their relationship with each other. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, across the street, a madman with a gun begins shooting at them. And the, the husband grabs his wife and throws her on the ground and covers her body with his so that he can protect her from the bullets. The threat of the crisis of history 
and the threat of militant secularism that is destructive in, in all of its consequences is a greater, a more urgent problem than our differences over theology, as serious and as real and, and feels like it's intractable as, as, as they are. Uh, I mean, if you think about that image, that argument's still going to be there tomorrow morning, right? Whatever they were arguing about, it's still going to be there tomorrow morning, but at that moment, that husband has higher priorities than that argument. And that's, I think that's been a very helpful image to me to think about. We don't have to compromise our theological position in order to recognize that we're at a moment where we need to show solidarity, however we process that theologically, even if it's merely because we're fellow human beings who can work together for a common cause that we both recognize to be good. Uh, even, if, even if you want to say it's only a common grace thing, I'm not sure I would go there, but even if you do want to, we can still do that. Uh, and um, I think that, for now, that's enough, right? Uh, I feel like the threat, of, the threat of the people who answer man to the question God or man, or not the people, but the idea, um, is, is a bigger problem. Uh, to your question, does it make a difference? I think it must make a difference. I'm one of those people who think that theology matters. Uh, I'm one of those weird people who think that actually your conception of God and of God's action has consequences for everything. Uh, so it, it absolutely matters uh, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, and it matters what kind of Protestant or what kind of Catholic you are. And there's a reason why historically uh, uh, relief efforts and social activity in the Reformed world are different from, say, uh, the efforts in the Wesleyan world or the Pentecostal world. Well, we have a different theology. Naturally, we have sort of different strategies and different ideas about what's going to work because we have different expectations about the cosmos that have come to us from our theological view. Uh, and while I don't know the Catholic world as well, I'm sure there are many sort of different schools of thought uh, that come to different conclusions. So, of course, the Protestant and Catholic difference will matter theologically. But, you know, the whole point of politics, and here I speak explicitly as a political philosopher, the whole point of politics is figuring out how we can cooperate in spite of our differences. Uh, because if we're not going to cooperate, that's not politics, that's war. Right? Uh, so, but if you, if you didn't have differences, that's not politics, that's just, that's economics or family or something, right? Uh, what's distinct about the world of politics as opposed to everything else is that we disagree, but we need to cooperate. Because if we agreed, it wouldn't be politics, and if we didn't want to cooperate, we wouldn't, we wouldn't share a space. Uh, so I think figuring out how we can cooperate in spite of our different approaches and narratives and expectations because of our different theologies uh, is really the key. Uh, and in some cases, it may mean that I and my Protestant friends are going to do this over here and you do your other thing over, here, over there. Sometimes that has to happen. Uh, but at least we should know each other and be mutually supportive. Please give another round of applause for Dr. Forster. Thank you. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton.org.